diversity is not just the differences you like, it is also the differences you don't like. And a very important part of interfaith cooperation is working with people who have views that you actually don't really like. Welcome to Canon Insights. I'm your host, Sahel Badruddin. And today we have with us Dr. Ibu Patel, founder and director of the Interfaith Youth Corps and a member of President Obama's Advisory Faith Council. Thank you for sharing your insights. We're glad to have you with us. My pleasure. Thank you so much for inviting me. So most of us are aware of the concept of interfaith dialogue, focusing on bridging divides between people of various faiths in the hope that conversations will mitigate misunderstandings. However, as the founder and director of the Interfaith Youth Corps, you often emphasize interfaith action, where individuals of different backgrounds can come and work together, putting their shared values into action. Could you speak about interfaith action and the power it has in your experience to make a tremendous difference and increase connectivity between various faiths? Absolutely. So, you know, action is, is uh, another form of dialogue. And in my uh, um, experience, it is a language of connecting across faith traditions that is especially resonant within those faith traditions, which is to say that uh, Christianity, Hinduism, Islam, etc., they all call on us to to speak our faith through action. And it's a language that's especially relevant to young people. So for young people who want to engage in interfaith engagement, uh, the language of action, I think, is the most relevant, useful, constructive, and inspiring language. So religions often share similar values, uh, as you mentioned, such as compassion, mercy, love, generosity, uh, for example. So while religious people are able to draw on these shared values to work together, where do non-religious, non-affiliated, or even secular humanists draw their values from? Because you mentioned that the Interfaith Youth Corps works with these groups as well. So could you share your experience? There's a variety of traditions that are not religious traditions uh, that hold similar values. Um, you know, people like uh, A. Philip Randolph would call themselves secular humanists, who were deeply engaged in social action for the common good. And so a lot of what IFYC does is identifies kind of uh, heroes or exemplary figures from a range of traditions, very much including non-religious traditions, that would highlight the shared values of mercy, compassion, hospitality, etc. Now, given, the, given your message around the urgency of interfaith leadership, you say, and I'm paraphrasing, interaction between pe religious people who orient differently can become a few things. They can become bubbles of isolation, barriers of division, bludgeons of domination, bombs of destruction, or bridges of cooperation. But here's the crazy obvious thing. Bridges don't fall from the sky, nor do they rise from the ground. People build them. So what, in your opinion, are the top two or three challenges whether it be administrative, social, societal, intellectual, political, or any other areas you feel that the world faces today that negates or overwhelms the spread of more interfaith efforts around the world. So I, would, I think that there's, a, there's, two, uh, there's two reasons that a set of people um, are, are suspicious of interfaith work. One is there's a set of people who view this 
uh, as I like to say, as an afternoon coffee issue, but not a morning coffee issue. By that, I mean afternoon coffee is something that is nice to have, but morning coffee, a lot of people think, is, is a need to have. And I think part of the goal of Interfaith Youth Corps is to spread the message that interfaith cooperation is actually a morning coffee issue. It's a need to have issue. It's a top five priority. I think a second reason that some people are uh, uh, look askance at interfaith work is, is they have some version of a purity test. Um, they, they say, you know, they, basically they, they only want to work with uh, people who are different in the way that, in, with, with differences that they like. And as I, as I like to point out, diversity is not just the differences you like, it is also the differences you don't like. And a very important part of interfaith cooperation is working with people who have views that you actually don't really like. Um, I think that there are limits to that, but I don't think the limit can be 50% of, of the population of the country. You know, as, as I've taken to say, um, I'm not gonna buy a cookie from the KKK bake sale, but I'm certainly gonna engage with somebody who voted differently than I did, because otherwise I'm not really engaged in diversity work. Interesting, so for these challenges, uh, any suggestions or even direction you would offer as to how the world can address them in innovative ways, not tried before? You know, so I, I mean, I think a lot of these things have been tried before. And, and one of the things we like to point out in, at Interfaith Youth Corps is that, you know, we stand on the shoulders of giants, which is to say that uh, we are, we frequently look into history at the work of people we admire and find things in those uh, moments in history that we can follow ourselves. One thing that I would say to your listeners is to think times in, in your life when you have found yourself uh, enriched or inspired or cooperating with somebody who had a viewpoint that you just really disagreed with. Maybe it was a lab partner in a science experiment. Maybe it was somebody in an athletic contest. Maybe it was a teacher. But I, I think thinking in our own lives, when have we found ourselves enriched or inspired or cooperating with somebody who we disagree with um, can, can help us recognize that this is, a, this is possible and that if we, if we think about it in the right way, we can actually increase the, the, the numbers and types of circumstances in which we cooperate in that way. So you often mention and you make a case that a good model for effectiveness for interfaith cooperation is the interfaith triangle, attitudes, relationships, and knowledge, facilitating positive, meaningful relationships and advancing appreciative knowledge in combination improves people's attitudes. You cite Putnam's book, American Grace, in which he argues, if individuals have more positive interactions with, or even more knowledge of certain religious groups, their attitudes actually improve towards them. In fact, attitudes improve towards all religious groups in general, how can up-and-coming interfaith leaders better utilize and scale this model that is uh, to use, better use the interfaith triangle? It's a great question. So, so I think um, keeping the interfaith triangle in mind is a very useful tool. And using it as a quick evaluation is also useful. So, so design an activity in which meaningful relationships are facilitated, appreciative knowledge is shared, um, and attitudes are likely to improve. So a good example of the kind of activity that is not likely to accomplish that is, is a debate on a very divisive issue. 
that is not likely to spread appreciative knowledge. It's not likely to develop meaningful relationships. It's simply likely to, to increase the polarization. So anybody thinking about their interfaith activity through the prism of the interfaith triangle is likely to design something that is different than a debate, quite different. So how do we uh, increase interfaith action, on the other hand, in particular? I know you say that universities should start interfaith student organizations focusing on service, and you, have, you actually work directly with universities. But what advice or ideas can you give for those outside the university or school context? I think thinking, starting to see yourself as an interfaith leader who whose vocation is connected to building interfaith bridges and creating interfaith spaces, I think is really important. Uh, as, as we like to say here at Interfaith Youth Corps, there's no environmentalist movement without environmentalists. There's no human rights movement without human rights activists. Well, there's no interfaith movement without interfaith leaders. And so becoming the kind of person who views it as part of their job, is how the interfaith movement spreads. I'd like to now talk about pluralism, a concept deeply related with interfaith work. At the Interfaith Youth Corps, you define pluralism in three factors. You say respect for individual religious identities, positive relations between different communities, and a commitment to the common good. But what factors are actually negating or overwhelming the spread and understanding of pluralism in the world today? I think that, so first of all, the, Defining pluralism is hard, but actually living into it is really, really hard because diversity is not just samosas and egg rolls and other things that taste good. Diversity is a whole set of differences that are not easy and that you might not like. So respecting somebody's identity, even when there's a dimension of it that you deeply disagree with, is not, is not an easy thing to do in finding other inspiring things to work on, that's, a, that's an ethic and a skill set. So I think that one of the things, I think probably the most important thing that stands in the way of accomplishing pluralism is thinking that it's gonna be easy. I think that we need, to, we need to recognize from the beginning that this is going to be hard and be prepared to do that work. So how do you recommend uh, the spread of it? Uh, how do you recommend its promotion? I think telling the story of pluralism is really important. Uh, there's a great line by uh, the, uh, the radio host Norman Corwin who would say, post proofs that brotherhood is not so wild a dream that those who profit by postponing it pretend. And it's a, it's, it's a, it's a rhythmic, poetic, uh, alliterative kind of window into there's a wonderful history of pluralism but we need to tell that story we need to tell the story of gandhi and bach khan working together in south asia we need to tell the story of martin luther king jr being inspired by gandhi and then working with uh, uh abraham joshua heschel we need to tell the story of dorothy day starting the catholic worker movement these are stories of pluralism that we inherit across history but we can't let those stories lie dormant we need to tell them so as you might have seen, pluralism many times gets confused with homogenization, making things similar or uniform. But in reality, pluralism means embracing and accepting difference, seeing it as part and parcel of the world so we can learn from it. Uh, often interfaith work has focused on similarities rather than embracing and learning from difference. 
Could you speak to the importance of this and what can be done to help increase the role of pluralism in interfaith work? You know, I think clear definitions are really important. Um, and, and you suggested this in your, in your question, uh, recognizing that deep differences exist, that those differences are often disagreements and that our challenge is to form relationships and find common ground despite those disagreements that kind of clear definition is a really important step towards achieving pluralism. And then inspiring people uh, who have the, the knowledge-based skill set, vision, and qualities to create those spaces, I think is even more important. Diversity, in my view, is largely a diversity of thought in addition to a diversity of color, faith, race, culture, religion, etc. So shouldn't we expand our understanding of pluralism to also include intellectual diversity? That's a sincere respect for other positions and opinions. We witness a lack of intellectual pluralism when certain groups are broad brushed as a monolith. One could even argue that most conflict and discord are due to a lack of intellectual pluralism or diversity, a lack of respect for other opinions and positions. Would you uh, agree with this perspective and what can be done to enhance this sensibility so everyone can be open and respectful to new and other ideas that might oppose their worldview. No, I think that that's right. I think that, um, I will say it again, diversity is not just the differences you like, and nor is it just the identities that you care about. Um, people have a right to their identity. They have a right to bring it to the table and they have a right to the implications of it. Now, I think that there are lines. So, you know, um, I'm not interested in neo-Nazi identity and I'm not interested in KKK identity, but 90, that still includes 98% of the American population. Uh, so people who are conservative Catholics, uh, Orthodox Jews, traditionalist Muslims, they are quite welcome along with uh, spiritual seekers, reformed Jews, liberal Catholics, etc. So I think that, that recognizing um, the variety of identities at the table and their variety of implications matters a great deal. You were a member of former President Barack Obama's inaugural advisory council on faith-based neighborhood partnerships. Could you share your experience and how you were able to increase a better understanding of faith-based alliances and even perhaps help change the perception of religious people in general? Well, I'm not sure we change the perception of religious people in general. Uh, I think that that's a tall order. Um, uh, but one thing I am very proud of from administration was the, the advancement of a program called the President's Interfaith Service Campus Challenge, um, which brought together hundreds of college campuses uh, at no cost to the federal government um, who were engaged in interfaith service efforts on their campuses. And, and uh, I helped design that program during my year on the President's Council, and my organization partnered with the White House to, to uh, make that program a reality for six years. Turning to the future, what guidance would you give to help Americans and the world at large move beyond just advisory and consulting-based faith partnerships to more participatory and action-oriented faith leadership, such as your aim with the Interfaith Youth Corps? The more people who view themselves as interfaith leaders, just like a generation of people view themselves as environmentalists or human rights activists or civil rights workers or social entrepreneurs, the more people who view themselves as interfaith leaders, 
uh, commit to absorbing the vision, learning the knowledge base, acquiring the skill set of interfaith leadership, um, commit to over the years designing programs and facilitating dialogues that build pluralism, uh, the more chance we have to advance this movement and to really build those bridges. On the same train of thought, great thinkers also often reflect about a vision for the future. We normally talk about these in general terms, but could you name a specific objective that you could see the world can achieve, let's say in 25 to 50 years? And what insights and suggestions would you offer that might help them address and achieve this vision? We talk a lot here at Interfaith Youth Corps about interfaith cooperation becoming a social norm. So what would be some of the signs of that? Uh, one sign would be, you know, our, our, our work uh, is limited largely to the United States. So I'll just speak in an American context for a minute. Um, if, you know, every, every small and large city in the United States had a day of interfaith youth service, and the mayor of that city, be it New York or Louisville or Houston or Dayton, Ohio, uh, was present at that day of interfaith youth service and cut the ribbon on it, just like cities have marathons and uh, and they have environmental cleanup days and Martin Luther King Day celebrations. It's just part of a city's calendar. Similarly, what if, what if every city had a day of interfaith youth service? Um, what if a typical question that uh, the, the hiring committee of a synagogue or a masjid or a gurdwara or uh, a church, what if a typical question for a clergy person they were hiring was, how do you plan to to build interfaith cooperation in your role as our lead clergy here. Um, just like I imagine committees ask these days about, you know, how that person intends to hold worship services and how that person intends to, to take care of the facilities over the coming years. What if interfaith cooperation was one of those kinds of questions? What if every college in the United States had an interfaith student council? Um, what if there were interfaith councils in every city across the United States. These are the kinds of signs that would indicate interfaith cooperation becoming a social norm. What symbolizes great leadership to you? What attributes of leadership, particularly interfaith leadership, do you personally admire? You know, um, I really think that uh, being a leader comes down to, to one thing, and that's uh, People, people looking at that person and saying, I believe you. That, that's, that's what being a leader is, is, is other people believe you. And they, it doesn't just mean that they believe in you, but they believe you. They, you know, I go see Bruce Springsteen every time he comes to Chicago, and the answer, the reason is simple. It's because I believe him. Thank you for a insightful interview, Ibu. Sahel, thank you for taking the time. Thank you for listening to today's episode with Candid Insights. If you enjoyed it, don't forget to subscribe or follow us on social media for updates on future episodes. If you've already subscribed, please leave us a rating or review. It does help new people find the podcast. I'm Sahil Badruddin, your host. And for a transcript of this interview and others, visit my website at sahilbadruddin.com. <laughs>